Turn in your Bibles, if you would, please, to Deuteronomy chapter 5. Uh, Paul mentioned that he read the wrong text, and that's because um, I changed things up on him. And uh, so it was my fault, <laughs> not his. Uh, Deuteronomy chapter 5. If you didn't bring a Bible, uh, just grab one from the pew in front of you. It's the same one I'll be using. It's page uh, 150, page 150. Uh, but I felt like this uh, worship set was really, really meaningful to me. I, I, I love that song, and I've called it by 50 different names. I still don't know what the actual name is. So will I. I'm going to call it that. I don't know. But that, that, that last line that just ends right there, the one who never leaves the one behind. Isn't that powerful? Um, because all of us, like sheep, have gone astray. Um, but God came into the world to seek and save the things that are lost. And we recognize that, I think, immediately uh, as, as kind of Jesus' thing. But I want to suggest to you, and I hope that you've seen through our series, as you've been working our way through to Deuteronomy, that this isn't something new to God, like Jesus somehow revealed it. And it wasn't alive in the Old Testament. Because what we're seeing in the Old Testament is a God who is continually working and striving to bring forward a people for his own possession. God's heart from the beginning of Scripture, from the beginning of time to the end of Scripture and the end of time as Chuck talked about. The friend that we have forever. That same message is the same beginning, middle, and end. The one who never leaves the one behind. And he's reaching out. And a part of what Paul talked about as well, as he was sort of sharing, as he moved into that song, what is it actually called? Oh, I got it! So will I. Well, okay, great. It only took, you know, a hundred billion times. And we, we got, that's a parenthesis, okay. Um, he, he talked about, uh, about the great weight of responsibility that, that comes along with such a privileged position. Such an amazing opportunity to, to dwell in the presence of God. And that has to come with, with, with some kind of direction and guidance because I don't know about you, but most of the time I'm pretty lost. And I need God to to. Step into the mess of my life and my heart. Um, I had this really vivid image last night. This really bizarre. I slept like two hours last night, so I'm a little scattered this morning. I had this really weird dream, and I I don't normally dream. So I had this really weird dream, and it was because I listened to John Mark McMillan yesterday. And he messes with you because he's got this line that says, we want your blood to flow inside our bodies. We want your wind inside our lungs. Which is kind of gross if you think about it. But we sing gross things, things that are really puzzling. Uh, um, There is a fountain filled with blood drawn from Emmanuel's veins. How's the rest? How's it finish off? And sinners... Is that right? Or is that a different song altogether? I don't know. There's some song where it's like sinners plunged beneath the flood, lose all the guilty sin. Did I do that right? That song is yucky. You think about that for a second. Like, that's really, 
like, if you're an atheist here or you're somebody who doesn't really know God, you're like, that's a really weird thing to say. But for us, it's really, it's life-giving. It's visceral because as I was, I was having this, I had this dream of, like, all of the evil that is inside of me and, like, like my chest opening up. I have so much, so much that I need God to get in and fix. And that's the beating heart of Deuteronomy, that God wants to step into our lives. He wants us to put him first. So that everything else can be aligned and we can live a joyful life. Because there is nothing more contagious than a joyful life. Nothing brings more joy into a room than a joyful person. I think that's what God is after. So we've been moving through the book of Deuteronomy. We've actually finished, if you hadn't noticed, uh, the first sermon that Moses has given. And most of this sermon was a story. And we'll do a quick little recap Uh, Israel was enslaved in Egypt and God delivers them through his mighty hand and an outstretched arm as Paul read, delivers them through the Red Sea, brings them up into this good land, the land flowing with, no, pizza and cookie bars. I've said it every week (laughs) since we started this, milk and honey, you were right, I'm just kidding. And they're like, and what do they do in their tents? See, now that was, some of you did it right. Come on, let's, uh, they murmured in their tents. They didn't even say we won't do it. They're, they're complaining, God, this is too hard. And God says, fine, get out. And they're like, no, God, we were just kidding. We're just kidding. We will go up and do it. Do it. It, was, it was just a joke. And so they try. They try to go up against this territory, the Amorites, and they get their butts kicked and they have to come fleeing down. And God drives them in the wilderness and they do this I'm going to call that 40-ish times, right? For 40 years, and then God says, enough. Enough. Go back to the land. And so God brings them back. They defeat this area, the kingdoms of of Sihon and uh, Og of Bashan, and they take these territories which preps them to move into the land of Canaan. Now Moses has shared this story so that the warning might stand fixed in their minds. That to wander from God is death. And that God must be first. Now the interesting thing about the Bible, something I find so interesting about the Bible, is it's not just, it's not just a list of rules. And even when we get to the section, the Ten Commandments, which we're talking about today in chapter 5, even as the list of rules is given, it's interwoven with God's graceful narrative. It's interwoven in what he has done with and through the people, as Paul uh, talked about, uh, as uh, how we, how God continues to to act first and say, "Look at my grace, now follow me. Look at my grace, now follow me." And so we see here in this section, uh, chapter five, verse one. If you want to look at your scriptures there and follow along. Moses summoned all Israel and he said to them, Hear, O Israel, the statutes and the rules that I, am, that I speak in your hearing today, you shall learn them and be careful to do them. Remember the word we talked about last week, shamar, this, this Hebrew word which, which means to guard, to, to keep isn't just to sort of, just sort of know them, have them in your back pocket, but, but to guard this as a, as a holy calling, as something, something that we need to hold close to us. Guard these 
statutes guard these rules, but they aren't dropped coldly from the sky. They're a part of this narrative as, as God brings them to the very, the very beginning of this land of Canaan, which he is about to give them. And he says, now let me tell you how to live rightly. And as I was trying to draw an analogy in my brain between like, how can we think about this? Maybe you're not really familiar with church, or maybe you're not really familiar with the Bible, and maybe you're not really sure you believe in God. You're, you're welcome here. We're so glad you're here. So I'm going to try to draw an, an analogy from my own childhood, and that was going to Grandma's house, because Grandma's house always had little pizzas and cookie bars. It was a land unto itself. Grandma also had something we didn't have, cable. These kids have no idea, right? They have no idea what it's like to try to move that little clicker, move those rabbit ears, and just hope that something comes in. I watched the news for fun, right? It's like, oh, the TV's on. My grandpa used to watch this guy, Louis Rukeyser. You ever heard of Louis Rukeyser? Yes, Wall Street Week, the most boring show in the history of any show written. The man looked like George Washington. I swear to you, he wore a wig, a white wig, and I watched it. Why? Because it was on TV. Grandma was full of grace. Grandpa was full of grace. I got to do so much that I didn't get to do at home, stay up late, watch cable, eat junk food, but you couldn't do anything you wanted, right? All the grandmas said, yeah, good. <laughs> Two of them, a couple of houses are really <laughs> liberal in this room. <laughs> yeah, you can't do anything you want, right? There, there's, there's a part of this privilege that comes with responsibility. And I know that's very uh, superficial. But that's kind of what's happening here. This is an amazing place for them to be. Now, one of the interesting things as we move into talking about the Ten Commandments and the rest of the laws that are going on, as we spend, we're going to spend a lot of time talking about law, and one of the things I think we need to get set in our mind is we need to understand that the law was meant to do something. And we don't think that way about law very often. We think about laws as, as they're on the books or as Congress is writing them or as the president's thinking about whether to sign or not sign that law. When we think about what law does, what function does it have, usually, I think, in, in your mind, at least in mine anyway, is that law functions just to keep back evil. Like, we, we got a problem, someone spoiled it for everyone else, and now you've got this law on the books. We don't often think of laws as producing something in us, uh, to use a good Bible word, any kind of fruit in us, any kind of moral life. They simply set a negation line. Don't cross this or you'll be charged or fined or whatever. The scriptures are very interesting because these laws are not just cold laws. They're meant to do something. And as I was thinking specifically about the Ten Commandments, as I often do, I was thinking about atheists. And uh, there's several places where atheists have talked about how terrible the Ten Commandments are. And like, we could do better than the Ten Commandments. And so they have their own alternate lists. And I want to set these two lists up against each other because I think it illustrates very powerfully what I'm trying to illustrate today. But let's look at the, the first four of the Ten Commandments. So if you want to look at your scriptures again, I, I have a truncated version here. Um, if you want to look up here, but, but uh, we'll look at the scriptures here themselves in your Bible. Uh, it depends on whether or not you want to start with verse 6. I include verse 6 and verse 7 as the first 
um, of the commandments, but let's go there. I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make for yourself a carved image or any likeness of anything that is in heaven above or that is on the earth beneath or that is in the water under the earth. You shall not bow down to it for the Lord your God is a jealous God visiting the iniquities of the fathers on the children to the third and fourth generation of those who hate me but showing steadfast love. Again, that magic word chesed that encompasses heartfelt affection and loyalty, right? Steadfast love to thousands of those who love me and keep my commandments. Three, you shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain, for the Lord will not hold him guiltless who takes his name in vain. Four, observe the Sabbath day to keep it holy as the Lord your God commanded you. Now, um, as we're looking at it here, I don't know that anyone has a problem with this one. Days off, generally, no one, does anybody want to give up their day off? I mean, it doesn't matter what you think about God, the day off is probably fine. But it would make sense how, how people might wonder, like, why do you do this first? Like, why does God start here? Why is this the place where we begin with? And I think it's because, again, these are meant to form people. I ask the question, why does... Uh, why doesn't it begin with thou shalt not kill? I mean, after all, we all agree with that, right? Don't steal. These other things that happen later on. They seem far more important than these issues right here. And, and this should tell us something important about, about, what God, about what God is up to. It should tell us first that it is meant to do more than just tell you what you shall not do or what you shall not uh, say, it's meant to drive home the need that we have for God to fix us because we're broken. We're broken. You know, Jesus, when Jesus so famously engages the Ten Commandments in that Sermon on the Mount, and you know this very well, he says, you know, you've heard it said, uh, don't, don't, don't break your oaths, but I tell you, don't make oaths at all. Let your yes be yes and your no be no. And, and be, uh, be such an upstanding person that when Carl says yes, we know yes. When Lisa says no, we know no. She doesn't have to say, well, I swear to God I'll do it. No, we, we, it's going to be done because the person has lived a life that is so upright that we trust what they do. Jesus says, you've heard it said, you know, eye for eye and tooth for tooth. And I tell you, you know, don't, don't resist an evil person. He's taking these laws and he's, he's driving home to the heart. You, you've heard it said, don't commit adultery. Well, I'm, I'm telling you, why are you looking at peace, people lustfully? Because once you've, once you've started that path, isn't the outcome going to be, going to be adultery? See, the problem, the problem for us is that we want to do evil. You and I want to do evil. That's the issue. So imagine this. Imagine if every conflict I had, I put it in my podcast a few weeks ago, um, if you give me a black eye, my inclination is to give you two, right? Because that's the way we work. When somebody offends you or says something mean to you, anybody been offended this week? Somebody at work? Someone in the family? Your kids? I don't know. Spouse, maybe? We won't go too far into that over the time. We, we, get, we get offended, and immediately what do we do? Defend ourselves, 
get angry, get even. We seek that vengeance. We desire, it, it comes from a desire within me. I get angry and I'm like, okay, well, I'm going to set this right. I'm going to put you in your place. I'm going to get back at you. That comes from within. What if every conflict that I had, the desire that came within me was make peace? Find reconciliation. What if that was the thing that just came flowing out of me? Instead of that knee jerk, I'm going to give you two black eyes. I said, what has happened between us that I can now bridge that gap so we can have peace and fellowship together as I have peace and fellowship with God who originally was my enemy as well. And, and if that was the kind of people we were, if we were the kind of people who, who our first reaction to being insulted was, how can, I bre- how can I bridge that gap between us? What need would there be for a law that says don't kill? Does that make sense? And so what, what the, the law begins with here is it, it puts God first because, because that's the solution to our actual problem. We want evil things. Every one of us. That's our response. That's our reaction. Now, you might not be the quick-tempered person. Uh, maybe you're the adulterer or the thief or the, the liar or the, or the whatever. But along the road, as we go through these Ten Commandments, you'll see your sin. You'll see your sin. And what God wants to do is he doesn't want to leave us behind, but he wants to get in and he wants to dig out that gunk out of our lives so that we can be the kind of people who want the right things. And this is why it's such a transformation of the heart. That's why it's the, the Spirit's work in us as we move into the New Testament. We get this revelation. The, the, J- Jeremiah, the prophet, begins to hint at it in Isaiah. hints at some kind of internal transition where our heart of stone is replaced with the heart of flesh. And we have this fleshed out in Jesus who comes God in flesh and then says, I'm sending you the Holy Spirit who's going to convict you. The Spirit will convict you concerning sin and righteousness and judgment so that we can be the kind of people who internally, right? Because if all we are is good on the outside, it's a veneer of pharisaical religiosity. It's fake. And God's desire, and I love this, if this is the second giving of the Ten Commandments. The first giving was back in Exodus the first time. And he says this before he even gets into the law. He says, let me tell you what this is about. This is God speaking. Let me tell you, now therefore, if you will obey my voice and you will keep my covenant, you will be my treasured possession among all of the peoples. For the earth is mine. And then you will be a kingdom of priests, my holy nation, the the nation that's been set apart, preserved for me. These are the words that God spoke to the people to set the context for why the Ten Commandments mattered. It isn't just because God wants the world to look good. He doesn't just want order. Instead of chaos, he wants a people who have been set apart his. So frequently we miss that this is what God is after in the Ten Commandments. And we think that we can use them generically. You can slap them on a court wall. You can slap them on a uh, church wall. You can slap them on the wall in your house. 
You can just share it, and it's sort of generically applicable to everybody in all times and situations. And this is false. This is false. And this is why uh, my, my wonderful atheist friends, who aren't really my friends, I've never met them, but here they are, um, have their own Ten Commandments. This is in descending order of intelligence. Uh, <clears throat> uh, Richard Dawkins, in his first commandment, says this, Do not do to others what you would not do to them. Uh, Christopher Hitchens, the late uh, Christopher Hitchens, who is my favorite because he was so good at insulting people. you got to watch his debates. They're a blast. Do not condemn people on the basis of their ethnicity or their color. Bertrand Russell, who was a, a very brilliant uh, thinker, won a Nobel Prize, uh, said do not feel uh, absolutely certain of anything, which seems to fit really well. I like that. Like, it's just uh, it's good. And if you read their whole list, largely... Uh, you would agree with them. I mean, this, this is, other than like, just making it more difficult, isn't that, I, I, and maybe it's just because I'm so used to say, do unto others as you would have them do unto you, and it's just so drilled in me. Saying it in the negative just made it weird. Um, but, you know, I don't disagree. Uh, and so a, as you read these lists, they're lists of just moral goods. And oftentimes we treat the Ten Commandments, and in fact the law of Israel, as just moral good, just generic moral good. But it isn't. It isn't generic moral good. It is a special kind of moral good that is meant for a special kind of people who are ready to bend their knee to God and be transformed by God so that they might be his possession, his holy people. So this brings us to kind of the the two big points First, the law, and here's the word, this is the Hebrew word Torah. That's the word we use to describe uh, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy, the first five books of of the Bible, the Torah. This is a Torah-formed people that God is making. This is not a a generic people, but rather Torah-formed. Now, this is so important. This is what Jesus is getting at, because obviously the Bible is not going to list all of the sins that we could commit, and if it did, we would find loopholes anyway. I wish my daughter knew tax law. Because every time I tell her to do something, she finds a new way. I think it's an ironclad, I've told you to do something, but somehow she weasels out of it. Like, it's just masterful. If I could put her, put that energy toward, I don't know, something productive instead of driving me nuts, then... But that's the way humans are, right? Because if you list all the laws, it's still it's the, the issue of the corruption. You see, Jesus isn't doing something new. He's doing something consistent with, which, with that which God began and desired from the very beginning. He wants to shape us so that we are not master loophole finders, but we are the people who have been uniquely formed so that we can be the representation of God on earth. Remember that, that in Genesis, uh, we talked about this a few series, few series, series, series is just plural as it is, right? Series, yes. A few series back. I get my plurals mixed up sometimes. 
uh, about how God says we're going to make man in our own image. And this word is the same word we use for idol, right? This is God makes something, and, and the, we are the thing in his image. And so we aren't to make other, other images because we are the image. We are the ones who are to be formed. But that form got sidetracked and, and, and corrupted by, by our own rebellious desires and our sinfulness. And it has become so innate in us that it just infuses the entire world And God is seeking a people who he can rescue, but he can only rescue them if God is first. And I think this should make sense to us because if God was first and and he was the one who I'm I'm focused my my eyes and my life on, and I'm constantly trying to humble myself and take the position of the servant friend, as Chuck brought up, as the servant friend to God, who am I going to... Lord, my my position or myself over, like who out here? Like if we begin to put God first, wouldn't we then sort of by nature begin to see? Well, I should put other people first as well. And if if I if I recognize that that I have to be careful with the very name of God, like to take God's name in vain is a, is of such a serious fra- infraction that God will not hold someone guiltless who takes it in vain and who abuses it, how careful should I be with my tongue when I'm speaking to those who bear his image? If I begin to put God first and, and take carefully the things that I say, I begin to recognize that, that in his firstness, then doesn't all of the other things begin to kind of line up and make far more sense? That we can begin to live the kind of life that allows us that rhythm of that last commandment, which is to uh, that we talked about, the fourth commandment, which is to have a day that 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 that's marked as God's day, so that in that day we can rejoice and enjoy all that God has done for us, all that God has made. That's the point of the Sabbath day. Of course, the funny thing in in the New Testament is that all of that is missed as the Pharisees and the Sadducees say to Jesus. Oh, we know you have the power to heal this person who's crippled, and we don't want you to do it. That's insane, right? And he, right? That's insane. If somebody had that power and they came into church, we'd be like, start, all right, start healing people. Line up, everybody. Make it orderly. But instead, they try to stop him. Why? Because they have lost sight of the forming and transforming power of the law to guide them to God and to mercy. And they've made them strict rules that actually work against the love and grace of God. Which drives us to our second point. And that is that the law, the Torah, uh, puts God first. And it puts God first so that by putting God first in our lives, everything else might be rightly ordered. If your life is disordered today... If you say with me, you know, if I look inside and I say, man, it's really dark in there. Or if you look at your relationships that are, that are just out of whack and, and you're constantly finding yourself fighting or you find yourself bitter or you find yourself angry or you find yourself discontent. Or as you look at your life, you just say, man, I'm just unhappy. There's a lack of joy. The solution to that is God. The solution to that is God. Because if we put God first... He infuses us, healing us of all of the brokenness and fills us up with joy. There is a need for morality, 
right? There is a need for morality, broadly speaking. But what's happening here in scriptures is so much more beautiful and precious than generic morality. Generic morality creates people who are moral when it is convenient, right? We've seen that across the board over these past few weeks, just lots of insanity in the news, which I no longer uh, watch um, because it's on, but because I'm old and boring. Uh, these, these things aren't, we're seeing all, morality becomes an issue of convenience. But if we're being formed along the lines of God's will and word, we become shaped so that it isn't about convenience, it is about desire. It's about being transformed and conformed into the image of Christ. And if we want the beauty of this, because I find that as I talk with people, and maybe here today, you, if you say, what is the most attractive thing about the Bible or about Christianity? Usually it's Christ, right? He's the one. We look at, the, we look at all that Jesus did and said and done, and we say, man, this is amazing. And, and the desire of God is that every single one of you would look like him, would represent him, would, would act like him. That's beautiful. That's beautiful and true and good and that's what God wants us to get out of these laws. So as we think about the laws one last time, um, I'm the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the land of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make a graven image of any kind in heaven above or in the earth beneath or the water under the earth. You shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain for God will not hold him guiltless who takes his name in vain and you shall observe the Sabbath day and keep it holy as the Lord your God commanded you. These are meant for our good and for our joy that we might be conformed to the image of Jesus Christ. And so to draw forward three things that I want to push on you for this week. Three ways in which we might be formed into, um, into putting God first. And these are not new to any of you. First would be piety, increasing our time and attention to Scripture, increasing our time and attention to Scripture, increasing our time and attention to Scripture, increasing, good, you all have these things, right, everyone, we don't, everybody have this, yes, You've got the Bible, listen to it. You've got the Bible, read it. It is in your back pocket, warming your butt 90% of your day. Use it and increase your time and attention to Scripture. That's why we're told over and over and over again. And that's why I think that we have the law infused with the story and the narrative so then we get dropped off and we forget, but rather that, that it shapes not only our understanding of what is right and what is wrong, but we see how God's people interact with it and we learn how to imagine the world as God imagines the world. And the imagination is probably the most important thing that you have. The ability to imagine the world and the, and the relationships and your working environment, to imagine the world as God imagines the world, but we can never imagine it if our time and attention and our focus is outside of the pious things of God. So focus on piety this week. Time and attention to scripture. Songs of praise and worship. 
opportunities to fellowship and eat with brothers and sisters in Christ. We give you that Wednesday night. If you don't want to cook dinner, guess what? It's Taco Delight, which I'm worried about because I don't know how you can improve on the taco. But we love Jean, and she has not led us astray yet. So, taco delight. Taco delight. Come in, and then, and then we eat, we fellowship, we, we study scripture together. If you've got kids, I teach the kids. It's a blast. We have a great program with uh, Behold Your God. I, everything here, we have all kinds of opportunities to, to plug into that. The next thing I would say, reverence. Reverence. This is something that is sorely lacking, I think, across the board. When you pray, do you stop and realize you are talking to the eternal God. When you sing a song of praise, do you realize you're singing songs to which the eternal God is listening? When you open scripture, do you realize you are reading the words breathed by the living God so that you might know him? Reverence. The easiest way to reverence is to do what I just said, to stop Take a breath and recognize in those moments you are moving from the secular, from the things of just this getting through the day, holy or unholy, right? Just moving through the day. And you're moving from the secular and you're moving to do something that is sacred. And we ought to take those things very seriously. And the last thing, the thing I want to to end on is conviction. One of my favorite words because uh, I like a good fight word, right? Conviction. We are to be people of conviction. People who are not blown by the winds and waves uh, of time and, and social media and, and all the things that we have that are distracting. We are to be firmly rooted in our desire to know and to experience the presence of the living God. And by experiencing the presence of the living God, come to live a life that is full of joy. Full of joy. And we begin that life of joy when we begin to recognize God's desire to transform us. And so I want to close the service this morning with reading from Psalm 25. In fact, let's stand as we read scripture. And let's make this our prayer. Make this your prayer. Take a deep breath. We're doing something sacred here. Fix your eyes on the God who did not leave you behind. And turn your heart and your mind to him. To you, O Lord, we lift our souls. O God, in you we trust. Let us not be put to shame. Let no one exult over us. Make us to know your ways, O Lord, and teach us your paths. Lead us in your truth and teach us, for you are the God of our salvation. For you, we wait all day long. Remember your mercy, O Lord, and your steadfast love, for they have been from of old. 
And remember not the sins of our youth or our many transgressions. According to your steadfast love, instead, remember us for the sake of your goodness, O Lord. Good and upright are you, O Lord. Instruct us sinners in your way. Lead us humbly in the way that is right. Teach us humbly your ways. For all the paths of the Lord are steadfast love and faithfulness for those who keep his covenant and his testimonies. O God, guard our lives and deliver us. Let us not be put to shame. Let us take refuge in you. Remember us, O God, in all of the times of trouble and joy. We ask this in the name of our Savior, Jesus, by the power of the Holy Spirit.